This episode of Murder and Mediumship discusses topics of drug use as well as suicide. In the true crime community, Bryce Pisa has been referred to as the male Maura Murray. And if you don't know who Maura is, then go back to episode one of this podcast and give that a listen. There isn't much readily available about Bryce and his childhood or his personal life on the internet, though I guess one would assume that it has nothing to do with his disappearance, so why would there be anything? This episode is going to be a little bit different than what y'all are used to for murder and mediumship. Bryce was born to Karen Pisa in 1994. His father, Michael, was his adoptive father, who had been in his life since he was a small baby. Everything I can find describes him as a really cheerful kid who was always making people laugh, though his parents describe him as a really good kid who didn't do anything normal teens wouldn't do. Kids from his school say he was the kid who would bring alcohol to class. And not long after Bryce graduated from Naperville High School in Illinois, where he played football and recreational baseball, his parents retired and moved to Laguna Niguel, California. For those of you who don't know, it's in Southern California. Bryce moved with them, but went to college about seven hours away from his parents at Sierra College, a community college in Rockland, California. I'm not really sure why you would go seven hours away when you just moved to a new area anyway, but we don't really know the dynamic of their relationship, so maybe he just wanted to get out of town. Who knows? And by out of town, I mean away from his parents. So he made a ton of friends fairly quickly, and he even met his girlfriend, Kim Sly. Not much else is said about his freshman year of college, but he spent his summer between freshman and sophomore year back at home with his parents in Laguna Niguel. The pictures you can find of Bryce during his freshman year portray a fun-loving and outgoing young man who appears to be incredibly social. This can't necessarily be verified, but it would seem that Bryce brought the party with him wherever he went. And his Facebook is still active and posted on one photo in particular. There's a comment about Bryce being the only one, quote, going ham in the group. And it's pretty blatantly expressed that he was also the only one who was wasted. And that was why. So maybe this was an isolated incident, but not necessarily the impression that I get. Now, as all of you like hop on Facebook and try to find his profile. Um, despite his alleged tendency to drink regularly, he earned good grades as a graphic and industrial design major. According to his mom on investigation, discoveries disappeared. He had an impressive portfolio for how young he was as well. The story of Bryce's disappearance leaves a lot of questions, and I can definitely see why true crime fans would compare this case to Maura Murray's. And it all begins, at least what we know of things, on August 28, 2013, when Bryce tells his mom over the phone that he's breaking up with his girlfriend, Kim. Roughly an hour later, he texted his roommate, Sean, I love you, bro. Seriously, you are the best person I've ever met. You saved my soul. Sean then texts back, I love you too, man. You have an amazing life, full of love and blessings. Don't waste that. You have too many people who love you, Bryce. The timeline gets confusing, especially the more sources you find. Everyone conflicts the other like a little bit here and there, a little more so than you see in in other cases, at least so far. So I believe the day before he broke up with his girlfriend via text, he told her, you're better off without me. And she texted back, are you breaking up with me? And he replied, yes. So not okay. 
I don't know about you, but it automatically think, makes me think of Sex in the City with the post-it note episode. Um, anyway, the same day he texted his roommate, he drove two hours north to Kim's house to talk to her in person. I'm assuming about their breakup. Now, again, depending on the source, I have seen that Bryce calls his mom and that Kim calls his mom. And his mom asks to speak with Bryce. I think that she called his mom, though. And she expresses her concern that he's acting super strangely and doesn't think that he's okay to drive back to his dorm two hours away, so she confiscated his keys. In whatever world a college kid calls someone's parents to tell them their child is acting strangely, there must really be a problem. And I don't know, I just feel like that would have really, as a parent, would have really skewed me out and had me insanely worried. But... I mean, you don't know how you're going to react until you're in something. So, no, they never describe exactly what he was doing that concerned Kim. But what I see when I read these statements is like pacing and waving of arms and just like erratic, nonsensical, like yammering. So Bryce convinces Karen, his mom, that Kim was the only, was only upset over the breakup and was lashing out at him. And that's all that this was. He was totally fine to drive. And Karen had already received a phone call from his roommate, Sean, within the last few days expressing concern as well about his drinking, I believe. Knowing this, Karen tells Kim to give the keys back to Bryce and that he seems fine to drive. While still on the phone with Bryce, though, she does ask him if she needs to come up there. She told him she would book a flight and be up there as soon as possible so they could sort things out just to make sure he's okay. He adamantly declines, but also lets her know that there's a lot he wants to talk to her about. This is so bizarre to me, which shouldn't be surprising because all of his behavior is bizarre at this point, but wouldn't the amount of time it would take for her to book a flight and get there be enough for him to get his thoughts together to talk to her? I don't know if he wanted to talk to her about school and his grades, which couldn't even be slipping when you're only two weeks in, right? So that doesn't even make sense. You just, your brain starts to go to all these different scenarios of what could be happening. So after all of this, at about 11.30 p.m. on August 28th, Bryce leaves Kim's place driving back to his dorm, or so we all thought. At 11 a.m. on the 29th, Karen received a phone call from their insurance company that roadside assistance had been used on their Toyota Highlander, which is the car that Bryce had at school. When Karen calls Bryce's cell phone, he didn't answer. And beginning to worry, I say lightly because how could she not be worried by now, she calls his roommate Sean and checks in to make sure Bryce had made it home okay. That's when Karen learns that Bryce did not make it home back to his dorm. And I wonder at this point why they hadn't called the police and maybe it has something to do with Bryce being a legal adult or God only knows, but after how he was acting and the expressed concern from all parties involved, I just feel like some sort of law enforcement involvement would have been necessary at this point, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. Anyway, Michael and Karen looked at their credit card activity online and saw that, yes, in fact, roadside assistance had been charged to their credit card in Buttonwillow, California. According to Google Maps, Buttonwillow was only about two and a half hours from Laguna Niguel, so why wasn't Bryce home yet? And to circle back, and this is where y'all need to get out like a pen and paper and start writing these times down because it gets confusing. Bryce never told his parents that he was even coming home. He told Karen not to fly up there, but that he had a lot to talk to her about. So now that he was two and a half hours away from their home in Laguna Niguel, one could only assume he was headed home, right? The owner of the service station that helped Bryce out with gas said he did so because he had run out of gas. He did so around 9 a.m. 
If that's the case, then Bryce should almost be back to Karen and Michael's, if not back already. So this guy who owned the shop, his name was Christian, and Christian actually went back to check on Bryce for his parents. When he gets out there, Bryce is still sitting in the same spot hours later, in his car, hours later, hasn't moved. Christian called Karen and and she asked him, she talked to Bryce and she asked him what on earth he's doing and asks him to just come home. So it's once again assumed that Bryce is on his way home. This time it's about 3 p.m. So a few more hours go by and a few more and they're still unable to reach him. So they file a missing persons report with the police department. Now, when they do this and it enables AT&T, his cell phone provider, to ping his cell phone to find him as it's finally considered an emergency. Wouldn't you know it, the police find him eight miles down the road from where he had been seen by Christian. He was sitting in a hotel parking lot. When asked by the police what he's doing just sitting there, he tells them he's, quote, waiting to meet a friend. He passed a field sobriety test and seemed fine to the officers, so they called his parents and let them know. It kind of boggles my mind, too, that they're even calling the parents because, again, like I realize now at this point they filed a missing persons and, and he's been found, but he's also a legal adult, so this is just confusing to me. But the officer encourages him to call his parents and Bryce refuses. He's eventually persuaded to let the officer call and tells his mom he's fine. He was just meeting up with some friends. Once again, they encourage him to come home and he agrees. I cannot believe this, but remember the service shop owner, Christian? Well, he's back. Good Samaritan of the year. Karen asks him to once again check on Bryce and Christian goes above and beyond his call of duty here and tells Karen and Michael that he'll watch Bryce for a bit, follow him to make sure he gets back on the road. So now they call Bryce every so often to get time estimates and ask for landmarks. And Bryce tells them he can't see street signs or anything, but lets them know his GPS had the time he'd be home by. I think it was like 3.25 a.m. And he was fine. So now we're into 2 a.m. on August 30th. And his parents are expecting him back at about 3.25 in the morning. The whole ordeal began at 11.30 p.m. on the 28th. And Bryce tells his mom that he's too tired to keep driving. I mean, hello, it's been well over 24 hours at this point, unless he like napped in those weird hours of sitting in the car doing nothing, but that he's going to pull over and go to bed. His parents tell him that's a great idea. And I've heard people say like, how could they agree to that? But also I think like if your kid is that tired and they're driving, you would encourage them to pull over so they don't crash while like falling asleep at the wheel. But that he, he's going to pull over and he's going to get some sleep and his parents tell him that's a good idea. And I kind of understand why they would say that. There's a lot of fingers pointing at them saying, why would you think that's okay? Anyway, at this point, I'm not sure how they're not on their way to get him, but that's just not how it went down. They went back to sleep, assuming he'd be there when they woke up. I'm face palming so hard because they don't get up until eight o'clock the next morning. And what wakes them? Hey, true crime fans. Can't get enough? Well, not only can you subscribe to Catherine Ann Intuitive on Patreon for even more murder and mediumship, some self-care and a little bit of love, you can also join me on Clubhouse for free 
to discuss the previous day's episode every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll be on for roughly half an hour to answer questions about Monday's episode. If you're not a member of Clubhouse, check the show notes for a link to sign up or head to my bio on Instagram for a link to the room. Trust me, you won't regret it. Now, back to the episode. A knock at the door. A doorbell ring. At 8 a.m. on the 30th, a police officer shows up at the door of Michael and Karen Las Pisa and tells them that their son's Toyota Highlander was found by a construction worker at the bottom of a 25-foot embankment. Side note, kind of blows my mind to know that this is what woke his parents up at 8 o'clock in the morning. They expected him around 3.30 a.m. I would have been awake at that time waiting for him. I mean, setting an alarm, making sure not, not even like, had this been the second or third time or however many times at this point that he has kind of pulled the wool over their eyes, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I would have been awake to make sure he comes home, right? But it's 8 a.m. The police wake him up. How do you sleep when your son is having a mental breakdown or something and driving home? How could they not just go get him? So a traffic camera actually catches his car passing by near Lake Castaic Lake. Oh my goodness, near Castaic Lake Recreation Center driving up the hill that his car was later found at the bottom of. His car drove by not once, but twice within minutes, the same traffic camera. Once again, yes, he's only an hour and 50, that's five zero minutes from home, just under two hours. And why his parents didn't go get him? As you've guessed by now, I will really never fully understand. He came up this direction right after telling them he'd be pulling over to rest and did not pull over to rest. His car went off the top of the hill and down a 25-foot embankment. And there's evidence present that he actually accelerated to go faster down the embankment. Though another podcast, Morbid, brought up a good point that as exhausted as he was, it's very possible that he panicked and hit the gas instead of the brake when he started to veer off the side. But frankly, he could have fallen asleep, jerked awake, and hit the wrong pedal. We'll really never know. Because Bryce's car was found flipped on its side and the back window was busted out the inside, out from the inside. There is no indication that he suffered any sort of serious or life-threatening injury, at least not to the outside of his body, as there were only about two drops of blood found in the car. And that traffic camera is the last that was ever caught of him alive. No one has ever been able to find him or has spoken to him since, although there have been many sightings of him that have not been substantiated. If Bryce was coherent enough to bust out of the back window of the Highlander, you would assume he would take his wallet or something with him, yes? His phone, laptop, and wallet were all left behind along with a duffel bag that was left unzipped and allegedly empty as if he had stopped to take something from it. Or so it has been speculated by many. We don't really know if it was just left unzipped in the car or outside the car. Maybe it dragged through the window when he came out of it. Maybe it was left outside the car. Maybe he rifled through it and never really took anything out of it. Maybe he didn't know what he was even looking for because he had been up for like days in a row and had just been in a car wreck. Your adrenaline's got to be rushing from that alone. Maybe he kept his booze in there or something and had grabbed whatever was in it days before. Snacks, I don't know. We just don't know stuff like that enough to call it suspicious or not. So this case has stumped friends, family, detectives, internet sleuths alike for years now. And the two main questions being, what did Bryce want to talk to his mom about? And where the heck did he go? 
Divers combed Lake Castaic for two days using sonar to find his body in the lake, and nothing was recovered. The lake has been searched by law enforcement and also privately searched by sonar um, sonar techs or whatever they would, sonar divers who were hired by his parents. No bodies were recovered then either. Scent dogs were called in, and his scent was tracked to a nearby truck stop where it was lost at the truck stop, and he wasn't found there. So many theories have formed around the few clues that were left behind, and some speculate that he intentionally went off the top of the hill because from up there, it appeared that the lake was directly at the bottom of the embankment. And if you're curious to see all of that, then watch that episode of Investigation Discoveries Disappeared with Priceless Peace. I believe it's um, season seven, but anyway, it's linked in the show notes, so go ahead and check that out. But from the top of that hill, it looks like the lake, it's like an optical illusion, is directly at the bottom of that embankment. And that Bryce was trying to drown himself in the car by crashing into the lake. Like if he drove off of that hill, his car would go sailing into the lake and he would crash and drown. This isn't so hard to wrap your head around considering he gave away his Xbox and his diamond earrings, broke up with his girlfriend, and expressed his appreciation to his roommate in a way that kind of screams suicide or runaway. Another theory is that he kicked out the back window in the car, and once he got out, he was disoriented, possibly had a head injury, wandered off to the truck stop, hitched a ride, and started over somewhere. And still, a third theory is that he was meeting someone at the truck stop. Maybe he had a burner phone, and that's what was in the duffel bag. I don't know for sure either. Other theories have him back in Illinois, some in LA homeless, and some think he's in the lake despite how many times it has been searched. I don't think he's in the lake. When he said he was waiting for a friend outside the hotel, was he? Perhaps someone was coming to help him start his life over, away from the life of his parents that they had envisioned for him. Getting to what makes this show different from the rest of the true crime podcast, my intuitive insight into the disappearance of Bryce Lapisa is coming, I promise. However, Bryce was definitely experimenting with Vivance, and he was taking a lot of it. So he had started taking it to try to stay up, while playing video games. He wanted to stay up through the night. He wanted to play his video games. He wanted to be alert and doing well with them or whatever, because I'm not a gamer. The Vivans started out as something for the video games. He was drinking very heavily as expressed by multiple people to his mom. And his parents seemed to kind of be in denial over the behavior that he was partaking in or, or the way that he was acting. They kept saying on the documentary that he was a good kid and they had a great relationship, but just watching the documentary, all I could think is there's such a disconnect here. Something just feels off. This feels so scripted and not in a way that um, feels like they're nervous to be on TV. It's more in a way that it was, they didn't want to say too much about Bryce. And I think that, I really think he was struggling and I'll get to that in a minute, but I really believe that the Vivance had caused some sort of psychotic break. And if it wasn't the Vivance, it was the combination of, of drinking and Vivance. Maybe he was doing more drugs than just that. We just don't know. But ultimately, he was losing his mind. And I really think that you couldn't even know. Seeing like Vivance can cause hallucinations too. And knowing that, maybe he wasn't even waiting for a real friend. Maybe he was hallucinating because don't forget, hallucinations can be auditory as well. They don't have to be visual hallucinations. So anyway, to the intuitive side of the disappearance of Bryce Les Pisa. It's obvious that I love diving into true crime, 
But did you know that you can also book a private reading with me? It doesn't have to be murder and missing person related. Some of my most favorite readings are ones that connect women and men to living in their empowered self. If you need clarity around a certain event in life, to connect with someone on the other side, or guidance in which direction you should be heading, head to www.katherineannintuitive.com and book a reading. That's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-A-N-N, intuitive. Use code MURDER for 15% off. And now, back to the episode. So let's start with what I feel was going on with Bryce. If this is your first time listening, then know that I will never speak of details I wouldn't want to accidentally stumble on with a family member of my own. With that being said, I think the freshman year brought an escalation to drugs and alcohol Bryce would have used in his high school senior days. I think that's why his parents kept him so close to them over that summer. And when his mom talks about how he couldn't have gotten into that much in two weeks, referencing the two weeks he had been back on campus for his sophomore year, I think she kind of knew that Bryce had already been into more. And though I don't think she would see it or admit to it herself, I think she had been drinking fairly heavily, excuse me, he had been drinking fairly heavily prior to returning to campus and had messed around with a few different pills freshman year as well. However, getting back to sophomore year, I think Bryce was feeling super depressed. I think he feels heavy and that he wasn't in a good place mentally. And I know that it's mentioned that Michael wasn't even his biological father. So, I mean, maybe there's a history of mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or something else that's in the family and otherwise unknown or that just hasn't been shared with the media. Just because we don't know about it doesn't mean that it hasn't been expressed to law enforcement. Let's remember that. So regardless of whether it was brought on by the use of the drugs and alcohol, or if it was just starting to come out because of his age being about the age that mental health disorders such as these begin to develop and become symptomatic, Bryce was most definitely having a mental breakdown, in my humble, non-doctoral opinion. Why didn't his parents come get him? I think they had bailed him out of trouble plenty of times, and that they were kind of like sticking to their guns and making him suffer the consequences of whatever they thought was going on. I can't really get much more on that, but ultimately it went way too far. I feel his dad had more to do with not going to get him than his mom did, and I believe she cut him a lot more slack than Michael would have otherwise. Furthermore, when they discuss how his alcohol use wasn't any worse than anyone else's age, I beg to differ. Bryce wasn't drinking just to party. Bryce was drinking to numb out or to go somewhere else or to ease his anxiety or rising symptoms of his mental health issues. I do believe his suffering was exacerbated by his drug use. Because why would his parents lie about this behavior? I think it was partly due to wanting to maintain an image and partly due to being in denial over what was going on with Karen's only child. So why was he giving his stuff away? I think he was intending on killing himself. And I know that his family refuses to accept that as an option, but I don't blame them as that's not something easy to admit. I believe that he broke up with his girlfriend to try to make it easier for her and gave away his belongings because he wasn't coming back for them. And if he had been planning to start over, he would have sold them especially the Xbox and the diamond earrings. It kind of surprises me that he didn't give the earrings to Kim, but regardless, he didn't necessarily need money, right? So why tell his mom he had a lot to tell her? What was that all about? 
As a psychic medium who does readings regularly, I have read plenty, I've had plenty of people ask me if I can read anyone. And even if they don't know or don't want to be read, I will be the first to say that in my experience, and I know that it's the experience of plenty of others in my community, if someone doesn't want to be read, it makes it a hell of a lot more difficult. If your energy is closed off, then I can't get into it to read it. If you don't want to be read, I can still maybe get a little bit of stuff about you, but what you're hiding or hoping I don't see, I likely won't. So when I sat down to feel into this case, my experience was so vastly different than it was with Brittany Drexel, who seemingly sat on the edge of my desk and readily made herself available, or like with Relisha Red last week, who practically showed a movie to me of what happened to her. Even with John Bonet, she wouldn't necessarily communicate with me in a mediumship way, but I was able to psychically see what had happened. I did pick up on drugs, and specifically pills. I did get the sense of him tripping, quote, tripping on drugs, but I believe that was him going through the psychotic break as well. And as much as I tried to see what happened to Bryce, I can see his car rolling down the hill, I can see him kicking out the back window, and I can see him walking away with something in his hand, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I mean, seriously, you guys, it could be like a snack. I I really can't tell what is in his hand. And for those of you asking, like, well, why don't you just ask? Just ask. It's like, that's what I was just explaining about how if someone doesn't want you to see something, you don't have to see it. You just, you might not be able to get to it. So I can see him walking up to the truck stop. I hear the words tire iron about as clear as day. And I, I see it raising up over him. Like he sees it, but I just don't see what happens. And and why would I do this case then if I don't have a very clear picture for you? Because I could invent a whole story around what I think happened. I could use my imagination, but I do believe suicide was his intention. I'm not sure that he carried it through. You would think it would be super easy to be able to tell if someone was dead or alive, but it isn't always that simple. Their energy can be so powerful that they feel alive when they are dead. Or they can choose to not answer your calls on the other side. It's kind of like placing a call on your phone, right? Like you call your mom, she doesn't have to answer the phone, even if she is there. So if they don't want to be found, then I believe it's disrespectful to continue to look. And the final thing I will share with you is that I did also see a desert area. But again, I'm not sure what it means. And I don't want to guess as to what it means. He could have driven through the desert and that's why I saw it. Did he have a burner phone and called someone who was going to come get him so he could start over? That seems unrealistic as crashing a car and risking actually getting hurt seems insane. However, maybe he wasn't planning on crashing the car. Maybe that part really was an accident and not a suicide attempt. He was, however, I really believe experiencing a psychotic break at the time. And I do think he was suicidal or he wouldn't have given that stuff away. Whether the accident was an attempt or not, I guess we can't really be sure. Like I said, Vivans can cause hallucinations, and my overall suspicion is that he may have been experiencing those while either coming off of it, or maybe he still had a lot of it in his system. He wouldn't have appeared to be under the influence of something in a way that would cause him to fail a field sobriety test, because Vivans doesn't impair you in that way. I was prescribed, and I know it reacts differently when you're prescribed it versus when you're abusing it, but when I was prescribed Vivans, I hated it, and I didn't take it for very long. My personal experience was intense brain fog and some confusion. And frankly, if, you, if you're taking it for focus, that's kind of counterproductive, right? So 
Let's factor in that he was up for days at this point. I mean, literally, he was awake for more than a day or two. He started using Vyvanse to stay up all night playing video games. Lack of sleep can cause hallucinations, even with or without the drugs, that also can cause that side effect. The whole situation is insanely tragic, but the best that I could guess with the tire iron, the truck stop, and the wandering away is that he was even more disoriented after his accident. He stumbled from the car, left his belongings because he was just focused on getting out of the vehicle. And if he's that tired and coming off of or still on drugs, we can't try to apply logic to his actions. He clearly wasn't thinking from a logical state of mind. He likely met with foul play and that is maybe what was used as a weapon against him and he was left in a desert area. This is where I remind you that I really can't say for sure though, except that what, except for what I have said so far. Do I think he's still out there? I can't be 100% sure, but I really don't believe so. I do believe he tried to commit suicide and that it failed. He wandered off, but I mean, maybe not. He wandered off and happened to choose the correct direction to the gas station and was picked up at the truck stop looking for a ride. I did have images of him in like a homeless area, like kind of like warming his hands, like gas or like like trash can fire kind of thing. But I have to be honest with you, at that point when I saw it, I don't know that I was even still seeing just with psychic vision or if I was starting to try to create a story for lack of having one. Um, I have spoken to a few of my psychic friends to see what they could get from this case because I was just so stumped and back and forth. And it's actually been a pretty 50-50 split of what we're seeing. And that's where it's a really good opportunity to express to you. This is why psychics aren't here to solve cases. We're here to give indicators to detectives, clues to police officers, let them put it all together. Even if we can like wrap it all up in a perfect package and see it exactly as it is, it's not our job to literally solve the crime. So I get a sense of embarrassment and shame from him. Whether he is dead or alive, I do believe he has passed. That is my final answer to that. I would invite anyone, though, who listens to send him some light and some love because I don't think that he passed that night. I think there was a lot more that happened in between when he did wreck his car and when he actually passed away. But as I, I, I do believe the last few known weeks of his existence were tumultuous and incredibly confusing and unsettling for him as well as for his family. So if you know someone or you personally are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And again, all of the sources will be listed in the show notes as well as the blog on katherineannintuitive.com. Thank you all for listening and stay safe.